0: I do have a lot of balls in the air. Um, I just enjoy everything that I do. So it's whilst I do have a lot of balls in the air, I've got a lot going on, I am, remind myself regularly to smile and appreciate what I've, what I've got because it's fun.
1: Hello, hello, and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Hair podcast telling stories about rural and regional women across Australia. I'm your host for this episode, Emily Herbert, And it's so good to be back in your ears after having my little boy, who is now four months old. And what a way to get back into things. Driving home from work is often the first chance Ali Cooper has to take a deep breath in her day. The mum of three is part of the CC Cooper and Co. Family Farming Empire nearly 2 million acres, spread across six properties, across New South Wales, South Australia and WA. If that's not quite enough, Ali has also recently taken on Jamestown's The Park, breathing new life into the cabins and caravan facilities. She leads a big, busy, full life, married to fifth-generation farmer, Seth. The Coopers have been on a mission to expand and diversify their operation, contending with devastating droughts and floods along the way. Theirs is a story of unearthing opportunities and seizing the moment, while dealing with the inevitable challenges along the way.
0: So we started at Jamestown. where my husband's father was farming um, my husband Seth and his brother Tom were both at university and eventually they came home in um, early 2000s and they got home and they're such innovative creative boys and they started to think well let's we, we can't continue farming at Jamestown and buying land it's just getting the price land prices getting quite high so they Um, I started looking at pastoral country, so we then bought uh, Wonga, which is um, south of Broken Hill in New South Wales, um, which was great. Great decision. Um, It's a very much loved piece of land that uh, the family will have a great connection with. Um, And then we decided we needed a bit more um, arable country in our mix, so we then went down to the Nurung Peninsula um, south of Adelaide on the Coorong. Um, where we do majority cropping there. It's a really great malting barley and canola growing environment. Uh, we will bring sheep down there to do a bit of stubble bashing over the summer, clean up any grain that's been spilled or you know, um, shattered out um, during the harvest period. Um, and then we thought we needed a bit more uh, um, partial country. So we then bought uh, Majura Plains Station, which is in WA, which has been fantastic. There's been a huge amount of developmental work going there, um, new fencing, new pipelines. It's all on limestone, so it's been quite um, a tricky process. So my husband's had to de- design um, this fencing rig, which um, has like a truck and a trailer and a tractor, and it's fantastic, um, great. Everyone it seems to come in and want, want, a, want a piece of it. Well, not want a piece, um, It's attracting a lot of attention from other people um, in the industry. Mm -hmm. So that is, yeah, our biggest place. It's 1.75 million acres. Um, It's running sheep, but there is some um, parts of the place that is not suitable for sheep growing. So we've just actually delved into ball goats. We've just bought a ball goat stud. Wow! Which is pretty exciting. So yeah, so they're very, they're quite suited to the Nullarbor environment, um, particularly in this, in certain parts of the Madura Plains Station, which, yeah, it's not, not um, suitable for sheep. So that's all exciting there. Um, and then we, we bought a property called Cur- at, at Kirby, um, which is almost halfway between Madura Plains and our Jamestown property. So it's in South Australia. It's on the Nullarbor. Um, it's a great mix of cropping and sheep. Um, so that place is about, it's about 17,000 acres arable, but 25,000 acres in total. A lot of that, um, that's a, I don't know, 13 whatever it is, the, the math there, the 8,000 there isn't really arable there. Um, but it was a great halfway point for our sheep that we're bringing back from Madura Plains. They could have a spell there, um, get on some pastures, Um get a bit of grain into the mix before they made their way back to Jamestown where we could then um, put, them, well, put them through the feedlot, getting them ready for our February um, weather market, weather land market. So that was a great um, little pick-up a few years ago. And then we've, our recent one is um, Broughton Vale, which is another um, sheep station in New South Wales at Little Toe Farm, just um, east of Broken Hill.
1: That is a lot to <gasps> wrap your head around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And a lot of it was around diversification and trying to spread the risk, especially around rainfall, but that hasn't necessarily been that fab, has it, the past couple of years? How has it been recently?
0: Well, for, for us, we are like our properties are spread quite considerably apart. Um, and the diversification really was part of our strategy in terms of we when we first came home, we had 06 and 07, it uh, was pretty dry at Jamestown, and each time we hit a dry period and times get tough, we kind of think, right, how can we better ourselves for um, future-proofing drought um, conditions? And I mean, look, you'll never future-proof yourself entirely, but how can we like reduce the effects it has on us later on? So. It's the reason why we went to Broken Hill. So when we had a bad season cropping wise, we had that grazing um, grazing income to fall back on. So when um, Eastern Australia, so our New South Wales properties were in drought, uh, majura Plains in WA was still having a good season. So they didn't probably come into drought until 2018, I think. Um, and it sort of they came into drought as the our New South Wales properties were. Well, they actually only got a few, bit of rain last year, actually. So it kind of, there was a bit of a time when one was doing a can, one wasn't. And that was part of that whole diversification. Um, if, it's very rare that we're going to see all six properties in drought. So we've got a great mix of arable and, um, and grazing and, and a good spread in terms of environmental locations. When do okay. things start to really
1: take hold for you guys at Jamestown?
0: So we haven't really had such a drought effect as what, say, um, Eastern Australia have had where, you know, when you're relying on grazing solely um, and there is no plants, there is no feed, um, that's, yeah, pretty pretty hard times for those guys. For us in Jamestown, we, last year wasn't too bad. Um, we've just had some slightly below average years seasonally um, in terms of Um, in cropping but for us it's we just spread that risk so um, last year we had good opening rains but then we had a very dry winter and then we had a very wet spring so it's 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 very difficult it yeah it's a bit difficult to say you know drought in Jamestown it's yeah it's it's nothing compared to what other parts of the country have experienced.
1: So tell me a little bit about when you first came back to the Jamestown property, how old were you and and Seth, your husband, and what was that experience like coming back to the property? Yeah, so
0: I was in my early twenties, very early twenties. Um, we had just finished university. I finished first. My husband was still finishing his PhD. Um, so I came home. I had a job with Rural Solutions as a our titles changed, but essentially I was a farming systems consultant. Um, And we moved into Seth's grandparents' house. It hadn't been lived in for a few years. We'd been living there on weekends, but it was very basic. Um, We got married later in that year. We were engaged at the time. Um, We came home and I remember my father-in-law saying, oh, we have to redo that bathroom. You can't live in that house with the bathroom as it is. And I kept saying, no, don't spend any money on this house because eventually we want to do it properly and we'll just save the money to do it properly. But that meant that the toilet was outside, which was not so great when middle of winter and you're pregnant and you have to go to the toilet every sort of like hour. Um, (laughs) The bathroom was an ongoing saga of issues. At one stage, um, Seth and my brother-in-law Tom had said, oh, well, that's it. We'll just rip the bath out and you can just bath on the front veranda. I was like, no, no. (laughs) Um, The cupboards, like the the mice seemed to just live in the house. They were just everywhere. So there was only the overhead cupboards in the kitchen could be used. Everything else below was just (laughs) nuts. We've given them up to the mice. They can have them I'm over this. Um, there was this lean-to part of the house and it was all louvered windows. So there was one, um, one summer we'd had a vetch crop that winter and then we'd graze the sheep on that vetch the stubble over summer. And if anyone is listening who's grown vetch before, they know by the end of the summer there is nothing left in that paddock really because the vine just just rolls away. And we had this dust storm and I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, this house is vibrating, what is going on? And I ran out into this lean-to and I could not see. It was like a cyclone in there from the dust and the wind and just shut the door, put a towel under the door and left that. (laughs) And then in the spring, the bees would come in and invade the walls in in that lean-to bit. When we demolished that part, the whole wall was just filled with honeycomb. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it was a crazy time. But anyway, we've since renovated. Far um, much nicer house now. No bees in the w- walls, and not many signs of mice at the moment. There's a few, but you know we don't tend to get a lot of mice,
1: thankfully. Did you anticipate that you would always end up on the land?
0: I had always wanted to be a farmer. Mum and dad were like, no, you can't be a farmer. We don't have enough land here at Bourne. It's not, you know, it's a tough life here to be a farmer at Bourne. And so I went, I went to boarding school when I was young um, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I thought I really enjoyed economics. I at, started studying that at university and went, oh my gosh, this is so boring. And then I um, ran into my husband, who I had done work experience with him when he was working and studying at the weight in the wheat breeding unit. And I ran into him in my first year uni. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, economics. And he said, I thought you were going to do ag science. And I said, you well, I was. But then I started economics. And actually, it's really boring. And he was the one who said, well, do you know what? This is easily fixed. We'll change you over. So he helped me like defer the economics degree and start at the ag science degree. And, yeah, it was Always going to be an egg,
1: <laughs> and so that channel into uh, agriculture and then onto the land did, was that uh, always in the pipeline when you and Seth first started dating?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. He was always wanted to come home on the farm, but his father, um, he his father had said, "Look, no, not at this stage." Like, so, his Seth's younger brother Tom had come home after he finished uni. But my father-in-law had always pushed my husband to just stay on and do his master's, which went into um, a PhD, because he just knew he had the potential to do that um, and the opportunity to. So he did that. Um, but that made my husband even more determined to want to come home on the farm. So he would be constantly like he's the innovator creator in our in our business um, uh, team. And he's the one who goes, I think we could do this and we could do that. And my brother-in-law Tom's like, okay, yep, uh, yep, we can. And this is how we're going to do it. So he, they're a fantastic team. But yeah, my, by my father-in-law keeping my husband away from the farm, that little bit longer, it just made him even more determined to get home. So, and for me, I, when I finished university, I was just looking for work that was, um, that was going to be up in this region in the mid-north of South Australia because I was always going to be coming home with him.
1: Yeah it's a very different thing coming back to perhaps one property and then to expand to six properties and just the logistics and the admin and the mental load of helping to oversee (laughs) such a nearly two million acres. (laughs) What is that like for you and and the extended family?
0: It works actually well in our situation. Um, We have So in our business, um, it's my husband and I and my brother-in-law, Tom, and his wife, Anne, and then there's the father and mother-in-law, Leith and Averill. Um, We've got some great managers at the bigger properties, so down on the Coorong, um, at Coorabee and um, over at Broughton, uh, at Majura Plains in the Nullarbor. And then we've got some really great staff. So we've got Mark Little. um, He's our livestock manager and that just, it just takes that pressure off um, Seth and Tom who were managing and running most of them when it was, say, just the three properties, Jamestown, Wonga and, and Narang. But as we've got bigger, we've had to um, yeah, look at how we can um, add to our management team and take that pressure off.
1: Mm. And recently you had your lamb sale at Jamestown and you actually walk 6,000 head into town which I think is amazing why do you do that and, and what's that day like
0: so they've always walked the sheep into the market so even when my husband's grandfather um, was farming they would walk their stock into the into the market but we, we live so close to town even though we feel like we are quite a distance away we're tucked in the little the top of a little hill so you don't see the road traffic or anything but we're so close which makes it very convenient um, walking the sheep in is you know it's just an animal welfare um um reason really by the time you load six thousand sheep onto trucks and it's mini trucks um and because you can't bring a road where we live it's not road train rated so you'd have to you know lots of smaller trucks so that a lot of loads and by the time you've loaded sheep onto the truck and then off to the truck off the truck just the stress on the animal is just it's not worth it so we walk them in and it's like this, the market, uh, uh, yeah, the market just this year was of six hours, and that was uh, a lower market because obviously we didn't have the the numbers um, during the drought, and then, you know reducing our numbers on the on the stations, but walking them in, it's such a great feeling. Like everyone's so pumped, and it's it's exciting, and you know the hard yards are done. You know all that those months of feeding and cleaning water troughs and. Convincing the, convincing the kids that, okay, it's your turn to go do the water trough run. <laughs> you can take your motorbike and maybe take your dog for a run as well. <laughs> um, so it's a it's, it's really great time, yeah.
1: You have shared uh, a few photos online from the last years when it was really dry and tough. Um, you know, what was that experience like with the destocking stocking and, and seeing things really quite hard around you?
0: So it's with when you de- when you destock your property, it's 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 heartbreaking at the time. But then, because for us we're in a very fortunate situation that we could um, bring sheep back to Jamestown and, and put them through the feedlot, um, uh, or you know, every, um, Western Australia. There's sheep over there. We were always intent on keeping our breeding ewes because the drought doesn't last forever and there is going to be a time when it breaks and everyone is going to be looking for breeding ewes. They're going to need to restock. So we were very adamant at keeping um, as many breeding ewes as we possibly could. Where that meant that we had to put them in the feedlot, um, just um, whatever, whatever we could to, to keep that, that breeding head. Um, Putting the sheet through the feedlot isn't is is not an easy task. It really quite mm-hmm. is in, it quite intense labor, um, and it's you know very fortunate that we've got good staff that can also take, pick up that workload as well. But mm-hmm. you know there's there's also there's also um, devastating events that can occur when you've got them in the feedlot too with weather. Um, we did have some major flooding. Um, which even though our feedlots are on a hill, it yeah, was quite devastating and we lost quite a few sheep with that, which was incredibly heartbreaking. Mm. Um, but it is what it is. Um, we do our best to try and keep everything um, running smoothly. And, but unfortunately, you do get these events where yeah, things do go wrong.
1: How do you keep your morale up when things do go wrong? And, you know, when you have animals, you have dead animals. That's just the the way of it. But uh, in farming, it is such a gamble and so reliant on weather. How do you keep your head up?
0: Um, Fortunately, my husband and I are both optimists um, and positive people. So when one of us is down, the other one will pick the other one up and, okay, come on. um, And we'll just... We'll have a chat, um, have a cuddle and yeah, and, and try to think of, you know, how we can, how can we work ourselves out of this situation and, again, find the solutions to be able to reduce this likelihood of occurring again in the future. Um, when we're both down, oh, it's not great. So <laughs> it's probably best that we, that's probably when we go, right, that's it, we need to take a couple of days away, we're going mm-hmm. to the beach, we're going going to to see my parents we're going to go to Adelaide go out for dinner just we just take a break from the place just for Mm. a couple of days Mm. and recharge and reset
1: another thing that I think you probably turn to is your garden you're a a passionate gardener and that beautiful oasis was a little bit of a a last line of defense against the the dry of the paddocks wasn't it
0: yes so when we first came home um, the garden in our hou- in, at our house had been let go because um, Seth's grandparents had passed away for a few years. Um, and then we, we came in and we excavated because um, the house was built on a hill. So we sort of excavated behind the house, one for, um, to keep the water away and also two because we were going to build on and build that way. But for a while there, we had this, this quarry, this paddock that we lived in um and then we had the 0607 drought and that was pretty sad and I remember thinking I needed to create something that was green and that like you said a green oasis that when the the men came in um for lunch or a cup of coffee they could just be feeling like they've removed themselves from what's out there and they could relax and then get ready before they go back out again Mm. so Initially, I just started planting things that I could take from cuttings, so marguerite daisies and lavenders, and, um, and I had heaps of them, and it was great. And they really just stabilized the ground, created color, created a bit of a defense while my trees got up. And, um, and then eventually, I've removed most of oh, all those um, daisies are gone now because they are a huge amount of work, so much, so much pruning to do. Um, the lavender is still there, and, and they all came from two plants that Seth bought me when he was um still studying finishing his phd in adelaide Wow! and he would and he said he'd he'd bring home a, a couple of plants for me for my garden and so i'd take cuttings from those and so i have hedges of lavender through my garden now and it's all from those two plants that he bought me back many years ago
1: oh how beautiful yeah and what does the garden mean to you now
0: the garden gives me a sense of tranquility when I'm at home. It's, I look out the kitchen window and I can just see all the different colours and textures and layers and I think, oh, gosh, there's so, much, so many hours and, that have gone into that garden, um, so many failures and disasters. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it brings a sense of joy because I, I think, wow, this was a quarry, this was a paddock and look what we've got now. Um, even my children I'm hoping I'm instilling some kind of love for the garden Um, I got home from work last night and they were so excited to show me that they had deadheaded all of my Agapanthers finally I've been trying (laughs) this is a job that's been waiting for months and they had cleaned up all the dead leaves and they had pruned back the cat um, cat mint and deadheaded the roses and I was oh it was just so beautiful waking up this morning and um it was a bit of a frost this morning so waking up and and seeing the frost melting and and the and a very tidy garden just made my heart sing it just yeah it was lovely
1: tell you what i think you'll have a few uh, parents reaching out to see how you have instilled <laughs> such a sense of workmanship in your labor force well done you <laughs> i just yeah you do have three children um you're part of cc cooper and co and you have recently acquired the park at jamestown i don't quite know how you fit what you do (laughs) in the same hours that we all have why did you decide to take on the park
0: um that is a question i get asked quite often um at the moment em and it's. I always say it's a three-part reason. So one part clearly it was a good business opportunity. Um, the second part was it was something for me to be able to do that I could be creative and and have control over that I you know that I could you know do do something with because um, you know CC C is a huge em- empire and um, and I just yeah do my part there, but I thought oh, this would be nice to just do something for me. Um, and my third part, which is probably the biggest part of it for me, I feel, is for the community to create something that, you know, the, the it's a beautiful little park. It just needed a little bit of love and a little bit of extra care put into it. Um, we've got still lots more to do. Um, but it's it's a bit of a, a tourist anchor in our town. You know, people, if they... If they stay at the park, they're, they're likely to go and visit the other businesses in our town. For me, it was about boost, boosting the tourism of Jamestown.
1: But now, a word from today's sponsor. RB Sellers is a family owned Australian brand with family values and community at their core. Inspired by the Australian landscape and the everyday Australian, RB sellers began in 1996 with the release of the first menswear collection, which included its best selling Burton work shirt. Today, the RB range includes functional and hard wearing workwear for men and women, plus a collection of casual wear, durable farmwear, and kidswear that's easy to care for and comfortable to put on. RB Sellers is committed to remaining the affordable, accessible and fit-for-purpose Australian brand it is so well-known for. Community is a massive linchpin in your life. You, you and Seth are very involved. What does it mean for you to, to be a part of the lo- locality?
0: Um, I, I love Jamestown and I always have since I was a little girl when I first came um, for a cousin's wedding, and I thought, "Wow, I'm going to live there one day." Um, turns out, I do now. Um, it's just Jane sounds a really strong community. They a lot of volunteers in our community, um, and I feel once you can, once you're part of your community and you help um, build and develop projects and and put that F, um, that effort into your community, you, you get that sense of ownership, and that's you become like a family. So. We do what we do in our community because we consider it our family. It's your extended family.
1: yeah. And you, I imagine, mm-hmm. see that come back tenfold with your children now starting to, to put down roots locally as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They will accompany us to as many working bees as possible. Um, we talk to them about what we're doing and why we think it's important for our community and what they feel. Um, my son, who's 14, he gets quite um, passionate about supporting Jamestown. Um, he's, yeah, very, very um, intent on staying at Jamestown um, Community School and to finish his high schooling. Um, he doesn't want to go away to boarding school or anything like that because he feels that it's that his, right, his duty to his community to support the school. Um, mm. Yeah, wow. so, you know, it, it's great that we're that our children are taking on this sense of community as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. With your days, how do you stop yourself from burning out? You do have a lot of balls in the air.
0: (laughs) Yes, I do have a lot of balls in the air. Um, I, I just enjoy everything that I do. So it's whilst I do have a lot of balls in the air, I've got a lot going on. I just, I'm remind myself regularly to smile and appreciate what I've, what I've got because it's fun. You don't do things that's not fun. Gosh, how boring would life be? So you know, I do it because I enjoy it. So there'll be days when it's, oh my gosh, what I've got myself into. That's very rare. A lot of the time, it's, oh, this is really fun. And I walk around and <laughs> smile on my face. Actually, I do a lot of running. I don't walk. <laughs> People in the park quite often say to me, stop running, and I go, walking takes too long.
1: <laughs> Is there anything that you focus on for your own well-being?
0: Um, I try to, for my own well-being, um, I need to stop and just really try and focus on the moment. So on my way home, I don't have the radio on. I'm just focusing on just slowing my breathing down and just observing, you know, the countryside and what's, what's changing. And um, we've been a bit busy at the moment because my husband's been away for shearing, and I took that opportunity to really give the whole house work over while no one was there to interrupt. But normally I'd like to go for a walk, whether it's at home or um, in Jamestown, just to, just to, just to calm my mind and reconnect again. But, yeah, well-being. Um, at night, I do like to sit down with my husband and have a glass of wine, and then and just chat about our day. Um, we have this gratitude jar at home, and my youngest um, she loves um, writing gratitude. So we all have this. We all take a bit of paper and a pen, and we write what we're grateful for that day. And the kids know that they can't say I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my home because we know you are because that's a that's a given. And we want to know, what were you grateful for specifically that day? And my youngest, she's nine, and she comes out with the ones that just are real tear tearjerkers. Um, she'll say something like, I was really grateful today that my sister came down and helped me with handball because I'm not very good at it. And when she came down, I just got this confidence and I had a really great game of handball. Uh, and I'm, oh, my gosh. <laughs>
1: How beautiful. She's
0: just fabulous. It's beautiful. So we had the gratitude jar and so when we're all feeling a little bit um, catty at home, she goes, I think it's gratitude time, mom." So out it comes at dinner time.
1: That is such a beautiful practice. Who instilled that or where did that come from?
0: I started this quite a few years ago when they were little. So the jar's filling up. Uh, we don't do it every day. Um, but our school at the moment has taken on, um, they're doing the resilience project um through the school which is just such an inspiring um program it's it's general everyday awareness of being being in better better human um, but the fact that the school are taking it on and you know getting children to be more aware of what, how to be a better person is so fantastic i'm so impressed
1: resilience is a bit of a buzzword how do you think that we nurture resilience particularly in our children and during the tough times like drought or the recent floods weather events that we can't control how do you think that we grow resilience as a muscle
0: for us our children have been through those tough times they've helped um when we've had flooding and the and the there's sheep that are dying. I've helped with that situation. Um, so they've been through those bad times and then, but they've also been through those good times. We've just finished shearing at Majura Plains. Um, the two eldest were over there and spent, um, two weeks over there with that. Um, and they come back and they're full of stories and they've worked with the staff and, and they, they get a real sense of connection to, to what we're doing, to the job we're doing. Um, and I think when you have that kind of connection and a sense of ownership to the good things you're doing, when the tough times come, you can look back and go, hey, it's okay because we're going to come out of it. Um, it's it's not because we're bad people. It's not because we've done something wrong. It's just it's a series of unfortunate events that we have no control over. Um, <clears throat> and... Uh, then they can, I suppose, look to what they've what they have done and what they can do in the future. I suppose. That, I mean, for me, that's how I feel it. It possibly is.
1: Mm, yeah, perspective is everything. What yeah. is what is shearing like? How many head are going through the yards, and just how big of an event is it? It's
0: massive at Majura. I haven't personally been over there. Um, we just had we had the Derby shearing team from over on the. Um, their peninsula, they came over and did our shearing um, and they just put up on their their Facebook page, which we reposted on ours, is brilliant video of the Majura Plains shearing and the drone footage is incredible. They've got the drone flying through the shearing shed, just over the shearers. Um, They must be used to this thing happening. They've got it out in the yards and you can just see mobs of sheep moving through the yard system. Um, The kids love it. I love it. I have been to Um, everyone except for the except for two shearings at Wonga um didn't go to the last one because I'm here at the park um but it's it's a great it's a great time because the shearers are fun you know having fun as well um you're driving your sheep in and um the kids have always loved being part of shearing so it's at Nadura the numbers are huge they um they drove they start driving sheep in um uh, weeks beforehand because there's quite a big distance to cover. Um, we've got a feedlot system now at Majura, so the sheep can be put in there. Um, they, they're shorn and then they're trucked back to their paddocks because rather than trying to walk them out those, those big distances again, they are then trucked back directly to their paddocks. Wow. And that, yeah.
1: You know, the size of the, the properties and, and probably possibly the isolation factor, it does feel quite old school but then you introduce things like drones and, and things like that how has technology enabled you to farm in a, in a better and a probably a more efficient way in these enormous distances
0: so um particularly on the station countries we've got water telemetry so water monitoring systems where we get um Alarms tell us when the tank is um, half full, or there's one meter left, or there's a high flow rate happening. So, you know, you get these alarms, and you can go right. We need to get out to this paddock now. Um, And there's, um, so I think, yeah, there's a few of them that get get it sent to their phones um, or their email. So that's always happening. Um, So that that's the sort of the technology side on the stations. Um, We've got a great auto drafter now. That also helps. that takes a lot of time off as well with trying to draft. Um, on the cropping side, uh, you know, the technology has always been there and it just changes all the time. Um, you know, we've got the auto steer and and auto shot off on your booms, like your boom sprays and things like that. So technology in the in the arable sense, um, new cropping um situations has always is it's always evolving. Um and because you're, we're already, we've been in the game for such a long time with that, it's, it's just a little tweak here and a little tweak there. But in terms of the grazing side, technology is, yes, yeah, starting to really take off.
1: Mm. Do you miss being on the farm when you're in the, at the park in Jamestown? Yeah, I do actually.
0: Mm. Um, I'm at the point where I'm starting to think, right, I need to start employing people because <laughs> this is a seven-day-a-week job um, eight till six almost every day, um, and so I do miss being on the farm. I do miss um, jumping in the car and going. Oh, we're going to the station this week. Cool. Um, so that, yeah. Hopefully, the future, um, I will have less time in the park, so that gives me more time to be on the on the farm.
1: Yeah. Mm. What is it that you love most? What is it that you enjoy doing in a day to day routine?
0: On the farm, there is never one day that's the same they're always different so you never know I might start the day thinking, oh I've got quite a quite a bit of time on my hands this is before the part mind you <laughs> um, I've got a, quite a bit of time on my hands today and then the day at the end of the day would come and I think I didn't do anything I thought I was going to do because I ended up having to help move, a, move machinery or um, do some yard work or plumbing issues or something like there was or had to run to Adelaide to go pick up parts or there's always with farming it's so unpredictable what's going to happen so and I think that's probably what I like I I came home when we came home I was always um an organized person and everything was you know planned and and I would get quite upset when you know plans wouldn't go to plan um (laughs) but then But then you have children, and then you learn that actually farming and children are so similar. There is, you cannot, um, you you can plan for a generalized situation, but you can't be, um, yeah, you can't be a stronghold on what your plan is going to be because um, it changes all the time. Mm. Farming does, families do. Mm. Someone gets sick, someone breaks an arm.
1: (laughs) It never ends. (laughs) Never ends. What do you think the future holds for C.C. Cooper & Co.? Do you think that you will continue to expand the empire?
0: Ah, good question. Well, it's a question that um, has been asked by my mother and father-in-law and the bank quite a few times. When are you going to, (laughs) when's the end, where's the end? (laughs) I don't know what the end will be actually because it's part of that, well, it's part of that diversification, that... um, that strategizing with trying to future-proof um, drought and markets prices and things like that. So when opportunities come, um, it's you know it's a great thing to maybe investigate. My husband, you know, he loved his grandfather, and um, his grandfather always said to him, "Just don't be afraid to give it a go." So mm. I think that is why we are where we are today because both he and his brother. Aren't afraid to give things a go, um, and the other the other quote I suppose his grandfather instilled instilled in them was um, if at first you don't succeed, try try again. That you know that famous quote. Um, and so, yeah, they've had some failures along the way, but then they've just went, okay, how are we going to fix this? How are we going to how are we going to get through this one? So, I don't know what the future holds for CC Cooper Co. Um, certainly, things will continue to develop and improve um but who knows it's always exciting to have a surprise
1: (laughs) (laughs) what's your own stance on opportunity because obviously you're you're not afraid to to dive in and i think probably australians are well, relatively known for the tall poppy syndrome and uh, it can be quite scary to put yourself out there, get out of your comfort zone and, and seize on opportunities that perhaps you don't have a lot of experience in. What's your stance on that?
0: Um, I, when we first came home to Jamestown, there was, a, that, there was a bit of that tall poppy syndrome going around when we started to expand. Um, I never took notice of it though. I mean, um, there's a great quote in um, Kaz Cook's book, Up the Duff. So I don't know if you read that when you were in your stages, but she um, says in there, it's, remember, it's not about you. It's about them. So people say things, they do things because it's nothing to do with you. It's because how they're feeling, what they're going through. Um, So I always I like to think of it like that um, when it comes to that tool poppy syndrome, that it's not about me, it's about them. Mm. Um, you know, uh, they're jealous or, you know, they, they, they're hurting. Um, in terms of opportunity, I am nowhere near like my husband who just takes um, any opportunity he possibly can. Um, but, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't want to be afraid um, and I, I think he's taught me not to be afraid.
1: Mm. Mm, Beautiful. You have two daughters and a son and you're obviously a woman in ag. What do you think the future is like for them in terms of opportunity? And is that something that you're passionate about?
0: Oh, absolutely. They all three want to be farmers. um, And my husband and I are both um, happy for them to all be farmers, but they know that they can't come straight home on the farm. They need to go out and get some kind of qualification, education, education, whether it's university or trade, I'd like university. Um, but they need to go out and experience the world um, and experience management from someone else who's not um, not part of CC Cooper and Co. Mm. So that when they do come home, they can be um, they can be themselves, bring what they've learnt to the table, um, and also not to be afraid to give it a go and try something new yeah, that we may not have heard about or thought about.
1: So with <laughs> so, the with the future generations looking like they're going to come back do you feel like this sense of custodianship of the land to pass on
0: oh definitely and I think I think when you are a farmer you kind of have that that sense of custodianship to the land that you want to continue on in the biz, in your in your family because um, because there's an emotional connection farming's a very different style of um, work compared to a franchise or you know you're not only working for an income it's a lifestyle um and it's that you get that sense of connection just like we get a sense of community when you work and volunteer in your own community it's the same with your land you get that sense of connection and you want to do right by the land so that it can continue on for future generations
1: and I think the future looks very bright for future generations at CC Cooper & Co. Thank you so much, Ali. It's been so lovely to chat with you this morning.
0: Oh, thank you, Em. It's lovely chatting with you too.
1: I really enjoyed this chat with Ali. I think we all know the back and forth required when juggling so many balls in the air at once. I dislike asking about balance, especially as it seems only women are asked about it. And I'm not sure there really is such a thing. Some things outweigh others at different times. It's a real give and take. Ali seems to have more hours in the day than I do, but I think that says a lot about her determination and her aptitude. She's a doer and a goer, and I find that inspiring. I also really enjoyed talking with Ali about how we raise our kids with resilience, offering different perspectives and not always shielding them from the tough stuff were two takeaways from our conversation. I'm really keen to hear what you think. If you'd like to send us a message on our socials or an email, it's always so interesting to find out the perspective of our community, The Life on the Landers. You can help us continue to give a voice to women and their stories in the bush by sharing this podcast with your circles. It helps us get found on all the important podcast lists. Don't forget to check out our magazine in your local stockist, or you could gift a subscription to a friend at grazieher.com.au. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazie Her podcast produced by Manson and Company.